Hi guys, welcome back to the season finale of Elsa and Rhea's Emergency Room Podcast. This week, we're reading chapters 20 and 21 of the book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs by Dr. Osterholm and Mark Altshaker. My name is Elsa, and here I have my co-host, Rhea. Hi guys, alright, let's get started. Chapter 20 was titled, Taking Influenza Off the Table. The quote that it starts off with is by Winston Churchill, and it says, A pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. So this one's pretty much self-explanatory too. Just saying how if we want to be an optimist or have a positive outlook on all these crazy, frightening situations that this book has brought up, um, then we basically just have to, you know, acknowledge that these are difficulties, but we also have to work towards finding solutions within I guess, the situation that we can use to remedy the problem. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that it's not over till it's over, even in the worst case scenario. So we just need to keep moving toward the solution until we get to the solution. Exactly. Talking a little bit more about influenza viruses, um, Dr. Osterholm talks about how In 1933, which was 12 years after the end of the 1918 pandemic, um, Dr. Richard E. Shope identified influenza as a virus for the first time. So, I mean, this was just a little shocking to me to hear that it took 12 years to find out what it was. I thought they might have known all along, but they just couldn't stop it. But I guess they didn't even know that it was a virus. Which, I mean, makes sense because, like, you know, the technology at that point probably couldn't have led them in the right direction. Um, But since this discovery was made, then the race had started to come up with an effective vaccine for it. So most vaccines target the hemagglutinin antigen or the HA antigen. So these are things that stick out on the surface of the virus. And the problem with this is that it's frequently changing. Like, when, when they mutate... Um, when influenza viruses mutate, these HAs can change, right? Because I talked about how there were, like, multiple ones of them. Um, and so this is why vaccines are so, I guess, I don't know if ineffective is the right word, but they quickly go out of style, I guess, make it more pop culture. And so basically, like, you know, they, they don't become, or they're not something that's long-lasting. We have to take new ones every year. We know this. So what Dr. Osterholm proposes instead, um, or not even proposes at first, but he just talks about how, yes, we have this surface of the HA, but then also there's an HA stem, which is the bottom part of the antigen. And this part is buried inside the virus, and it doesn't really change ever. So if we can find a way to make a vaccine that targets this area of the virus, then it's more likely or most probably most probable that we would not have to have so many different vaccines each year because it could be more longer lasting. But then he walks away from that topic just for a little bit and he starts to talk about the vaccine production process. So he says that it takes six to eight months to produce a vaccine and it's Grown in two ways. So the first way is a pathogen-free embryonated chicken egg. Um, and, you know, for this, we need a lot, lots of chickens. But then the other way is to grow it in a cell culture. 
And you would think like, okay, they might be similar in the sense that you're going to get the same result. But it's actually that those vaccines grown in chicken eggs are more effective than those grown in cell cultures. So that's just a little side note to keep in mind. And then he talks about how the influenza virus specifically um, is actually only effective about 59% of the time for protecting younger adults. And in some years, it's much less than that. So that's really not high at all. I mean, it is pretty decent. But when you think about, like, you know, the COVID vaccine that just came out, um, both of them are, like, I think, like, 99% or, like, 97 to 99%. So it's, like, uh, compared to that, the influenza vaccine isn't very effective at all. And, for example, he talks about the H3N2 strains vaccine which was the strain that um, was going around in 2014 to 2015. And he says this strain or the vaccine for this strain actually did not provide any protection. So when I read this, I was like, how was there not an epidemic that resulted if no one was protected against this strain? Unless maybe it was just we got lucky and it wasn't that good at effectively spreading from person to person. Um, because otherwise I feel like I would have remembered the news going crazy about this. It's really interesting that little to no people or 0% of people got protection from the vaccine, but maybe, uh, like you said, it's because of the strain itself and it wasn't that deadly. We can look up stats. I looked it up and it says pandemic right next to it, but I don't know. Oh, 1968. Oh, maybe it's because in 1968, there was already an H3N2 pandemic. So most people probably had already built up enough antibodies where um, it wasn't resulting in another epidemic. That makes sense. So now that we see that this vaccine isn't really effective, we should probably probably as a population or society, be looking at ways to improve upon the vaccine so that it can cover more people. And then one way would be to find a vaccine that targets that stem of the HA. Um, But there's like one problem, or I guess like the, not one problem, there are a lot of problems. But um, the first problem that's briefly mentioned is the fact that uh, we just don't want to put the money into it. And it's kind of... Um, hypocritical I don't know if that's the right word but like um, we're putting so much money into HIV and this is the point that Elsa brought up last episode but how we're putting so much money into the you know HIV research rightfully so but we still have influenza that also kills a lot of people every year and is just like a constant problem but we tend to not have any or we don't have nearly as much of the money going into that when we probably should. Yeah, I think, like Dr. Osterholm says, uh, we've grown complacent to the fact that the flu virus just comes around every year. We even call it the seasonal flu. And we've just gotten so used to having an available kind of effective vaccine around that's gonna maybe protect like 59% of us like you said before um and he says that we need to do better than this because 
what if we could just make a vaccine that lasted for a couple of years instead of just, you know, just that one season? That'd be a lot more effective and probably um, save a lot of lives. Yeah, especially in developing countries, because when you have something they don't need to constantly buy, they're saving money and therefore they could populate probably, I mean, vaccinate most of their population or more of their population. Yeah, and Dr. Osterholm even says that maybe it's better not to get vaccinated every year because this might actually cut down on the antibody response, but this isn't a proven fact. He was just saying maybe this is something that we could look more into. Did you understand what he meant by that? Like, what does he mean, like, the antibody response wouldn't be, like, why would that be a good thing? We actually respond to the vaccine and act like it's an intruder. So we produce the antibodies. But um, he's saying because we do this so often, when the new um, strains come around, our body doesn't respond enough to it. So we don't produce more antibodies, which makes us less like, which makes us more vulnerable and less likely to actually respond to the actual virus, if that makes sense. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought like, you know, no matter what, you're going to produce the same amount of antibodies. So it's kind of like your body becomes so um, complacent, I guess, like where like it just was like, yeah, we don't need to. We never die from this, like, you know. Yeah, I don't know if it's like the amount of antibodies or like the type, but maybe it's like specific types that um, they're trying to get our body to make in order to fight off the specific virus. Um and when we don't produce this because we're complacent, like you said, then we're just like susceptible and there's no point in the vaccine. So I think he's saying like if we take it every couple of years or we hopefully get that vaccine that's like every 10 years, then we'll have a stronger uh, immune response, I think. Yeah, that that's probably I mean, that makes sense if the science is there. Yeah, he's saying the science isn't there yet, right? Um, oh, yeah, he's like, there's no, um, it's not proven, but I guess it, they're probably looking into it. Yeah, but I thought that was, like, so interesting, because you hear everybody saying get vaccinated frequently, and rightfully so, because we don't know if it's bad yet, but just crazy that we could potentially be hurting ourselves without knowing just like the um what's that thing we were talking about antibiotics that thing mm. just overusing it just not good. yeah i was thinking about how like antibiotic resistance is a thing but not viral resistance if that makes sense like, and like why like how come it's not in their dna where um or you know what it is it's probably that it is or they could have the potential to avoid vaccines or like or not vaccines but like antibodies maybe but um maybe it's the fact that they don't go through conjugation so they can't it's not like they're transferring that dna to yeah because they can't reproduce on their own so it's not like they can just like transfer their dna to another viral particle and like spread this gene for avoiding antibodies this is a very like philosophical not philosophical but like very like thinking into the science but yeah yeah that's like i didn't even think about that 
It's very like fourth dimension type thing, but it's not the fourth dimension. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I was looking for. One of the biggest problems, though, with producing a vaccine is the fact that the companies, again, they just don't want to do it. And it goes back to that whole idea of why stop producing something that you know is going to give you a steady profit because it's year after year. And why stop that when um, or and yeah, why stop that for something that is going to decrease that profit because it's only going to be every 10 years, let's say. So it definitely makes logical sense for companies to not want to do this. But you kind of have to think about the big picture here. Like, I wish, um, you know, I want to understand both sides, but it's also like, shouldn't we really be focused on public health where if we could have a better vaccine that causes less hassle on people's lives, like they don't have to constantly every single year go out and waste their time and whatever. I know it's not too much time, but still, like, if we can try and minimize that, why not? Well, that's big for you know. Yeah, it's really unfortunate that we have to look at everything from an economic standpoint because that's what the world runs on, money. Not Duncan, but... (laughs) And so, yeah, it's really unfortunate that we can't just collectively come together for a bigger cause that's for the betterment of everybody. Um... And I'm sure there'd be a lot of pushback from people and, like, anti-vaxxers against the once-in-a-decade vaccine, too. So who knows if it'd even be as effective as we're saying it could be. Okay, Pfizer is 95% effective and Moderna is 94.1% effective. In October 2012, the Center for Infectious Disease and Policy released a report that's titled The Compelling Need for Game-Changing Influenza Vaccines, an analysis on the influenza vaccine enterprise and recommendations for the future. In the report, an overview of influenza infection, the vaccines for the safety, public acceptance, vaccine availability, and a lot of other things were discussed, and also four reasons for the collective failure for securing the 21st century influenza vaccine was also discussed. So the first reason is that for decades, the public health industry has been incorrectly informing the world about the vaccine being 70 to 90 percent effective, when in actuality, it's less than 60 percent effective. So because of this false sense of security and this vaccines effectiveness vaccine manufacturers policymakers investors and other people have no or little interest in finding new and improved vaccines because they think they're complacent and they think we already have it good enough we're doing the best we can and so we don't need to put more money into finding something better and so because of this we have the second failure for securing the 21st century flu vaccine which is limited public investment in research 
And so because we don't have people actively trying to get new vaccines, we have little efforts going into research. And so we lack the level of research and developmental facilities and such to make new vaccines through investigation and licensing processes. And we mentioned earlier how corporations are looking to make money because they're they need the they need to view everything from the economical standpoint as well. And so we need a sound business pathway that will look past financial gain and will adopt a market where a vaccine is manufactured once every decade and not look at that as a financial loss, even though it is one, I guess. And the fourth one, someone needs to be in charge of vaccines. Currently, we don't really have one specific group that's taking urgent action against antimicrobials or in the favor of vaccines. And so instead of pointing fingers to who needs to act, we need to collectively come together and form a group where someone can take the initiative. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And you may be thinking that, oh, what about the WHO? And I mean, yes, they are a body that is supposed to deal with this stuff, but they've been criticized in the past for not really being so effective with a bunch of epidemics and pandemics. And Dr. Osterholm goes more into that next chapter. But I mean, that's just basically a short version of why they're not the best to just tackle all these problems that are going to come up and that have come up. I feel like the WHO has a lot on their plate already. And so if we had a specific group specifically for these vaccines, for making these vaccines, then we would be in a much better place. I think dividing responsibility would be good for us. And so you might be wondering, why are we highlighting the four failures for securing the 21st century flu vaccine? Isn't it just the influenza strain? Doesn't it come around every year? And why do we need to make such a big deal out of it? That's because there's a high probability but low frequency threat when it comes to the influenza strain. And that means that it's bound to happen, but we don't know the severity of it and we don't know how long it's going to last. And so this makes it pretty dangerous because what if it it's very severe one year and, you know, it impacts us and we aren't prepared for it with the proper flu vaccine. And then two quotes I really liked from scientist Stuart Simonson, who was talking about this kind of high probability and low frequency threat. Um, he said, Mother Nature is the greatest bioterrorist of them all with no financial limitations or ethical compunctions and no limit on the level of effort expended. So I just I mean, it's kind of obvious, but just like highlighting the fact how like this isn't something that's in the control of a human being. This kind of just Mother Nature doing or taking its course like we have no way to control what's going to happen, really. Inter on that front but then we can do a lot more to prepare for it and then prevent it from getting out of hand and then some other quote i like that he said was if you're a chicken it's already a pandemic so i think that's just to say how yes we're not experiencing i mean we are right now but in normal times we're not experiencing a pandemic but if you're a chicken you're always under this kind of threat that you know you're living in close proximity with other chickens so basically it's just like a cesspool of disease and so 
you know, for them, it's like already scary. And just because we're not in imminent danger, it's why it's like we don't feel the need to take action. But it's right there. I think it's unfortunate that we aren't acting. Um, and, you know, we're kind of acting like the chickens because we don't understand the severity of what could happen in the future. And, you know, we're just going on with life like nothing's wrong until something terrible does go wrong. We need to be more proactive, like Dr. Osterholm has been saying the past 20 chapters. Yeah, so essentially he just really thinks it would be worth it to invest in this universal influenza vaccine. Yes, one option of creating a vaccine is to create one that targets the HA stem. But another option that uh, Dr. Osterholm brings up is targeting, um, you know, okay, so if we go back to when we discussed the structure of viruses so we know that they have that ha the hemagglutinin and then they also have the na's which is the neuraminidase so the ha's you can have uh one two three four five six oh wait sorry you can have 18 different ha's and 11 different na's but just six ha's and three na's have been seen to cause human disease. So if we can find a way to develop a kind of universal vaccine in which it protects against those specific six and three, uh, you know, HA and NAs respectively, then uh, we can probably prevent these strains from, you know, actually taking a toll on our bodies if we can find a vaccine that protects just against those few different combinations. And that would be great because then I'm sure we wouldn't have to make a billion different vaccines every year or, you know, just that one effective vaccine every year. Right, exactly. Right? If we could find one that just does the job, then we would probably be set. And then we could just focus on getting it out to everybody in the world, like a global effort. And and then maybe it's something that we can, like this chapter said, like literally take off the table. Exactly. The only thing right. is that we should make sure that, you know, there are some aspects of it that uh, would, I mean, to be picky, I guess, would be helpful. So, you know, it should be cost effective so it can be distributed worldwide. Um, the manufacturing techniques replicable. should be replicable so that these developing nations can mimic it and do it for themselves let's say if you know they can't afford ours maybe um and then also something that dr osterholm said is it would be good for it to be heat stable so a cold chain is not necessary to transport it so this is similar to the COVID 19 vaccines how you need a freezer that's like negative like i think 30 degrees celsius or something like that and so um you know, don't quote me on that. I, I might be wrong with the numbers. But um, basically to prevent that. Not need, not requiring a refrigerator would make vaccine distribution easier because, you know, it can be distributed at a bunch of places that do, don't have freezers. And then also the last thing is it would be great for the vaccine to not require an injection but uh, it could be administered some other way. So let's say, I don't know, in like 
um, drinking water, maybe. I mean, that might be a stretch if it's not really scientifically possible. I don't know. But that's what he's trying to say. Yeah, I think uh, especially for people who can't use needles for a lot of reasons or kids, I think other methods would be great. And also, it wouldn't require someone to administer the vaccine either. You could probably do it by yourself then. So that's all good. Yeah, and then unfortunately, like you mentioned, the largest problem standing in our way is just a lack of coordinated leadership, and then also the fact that we don't really have funding for it. In the typical flu season, the global vaccine market is close to $3 billion, and it's even larger during a pandemic, and so with the game-changing vaccine, which would be once in every decade or so, there'd be a lower risk of a pandemic. And although there'd be an initial surge of sales in countries like the United States, Canada, and Europe, there are about 6 billion more people in the rest of the world who need to get vaccinated. And after all all these people are vaccinated, there's going to be a very minimal chance of a pandemic breaking out due to that specific strain of influenza. Which is great. And Dr. Osterholm says that in order for something like this to be possible, we need a collective effort like we saw in the Manhattan Project where 129,000 workers of all sorts came together in the 1940s, or the height was in 1944, where they came together and so they were able to effectively make an atomic bomb. And although it cost them $2 billion, which in today's money is $30 billion, it was effective and it worked. And so that's what we need to do. We need to come together and act like it's life or death because it is life or death. It's going to cost a lot of lives if we don't act now. Yeah, it's fascinating. And he goes into this more next chapter, but how we're so willing to spend money on like national defense for, in terms of like war and stuff. But then when it comes to um, pandemics or, you know, science, people are hesitant. And I think the real reason for that, it's not that people just don't care. I think it's because of a lack of education, because science is a bit harder to understand. And so if we just did a better job at explaining exactly how these things can affect us, um, how dangerous they really are, and being honest, like, you know, we don't need to scare people if it's really not. Uh, a major threat but if it is like let's say Dr. Osterholm says that about influenza for example then we should be up front and try and explain that to the world and its citizens as best as possible so that anyone with any kind of education can understand it and therefore want to fight against it. I definitely agree with you I think education is a big step in the right direction and we do need to make the collective effort to educate everybody about what is going on, but not scare them, like you said. Right, exactly. All right, now we're on to our final chapter of the book. Chapter 21 was titled Battle Plan for Survival. And basically this chapter lays out um, our greatest threats and the priority of what we should do to prevent these threats. So 
to summarize the four biggest threats, according to Dr. Osterholm, uh, the first one is pathogens of pandemic potential, which essentially means influenza and the downstream effects of antimicrobial resistance. The second threat is pathogens of critical regional importance, which include things like Ebola, coronaviruses like SARS and MERS, and other viruses like Lhasa and Nipah, and 80s transmitted disease like dengue, yellow fever, and Zika. I, this is kind of a side note, but I thought it was interesting how, so the second bullet is pathogens of regional importance, and he included coronaviruses in this category versus the first category I just read where I talked about pandemic potential pathogens. So I found it interesting how, uh, you know, he he was so wise in giving us all these um different pathogens throughout this book and explaining how each one of them are dangerous uh and a lot of his predictions were right in terms of you know he says he predicted the mares outbreak um before it happened but so even with all these predictions he got right it's crazy how he kind of missed by mislabeling coronaviruses um by saying that they're more of regional importance rather than pandemic importance so it's crazy to think how he missed that and how a coronavirus could be of pandemic potential yeah i wonder if at the time it wasn't something that was that much of a threat nothing like that had happened before with the coronavirus being a pandemic i mean i'm not sure about that but it seems like maybe that's why he and other scientists maybe never saw it coming and then the third bullet point is bioterrorism and dual use research of concern and gain of function research of concern And the fourth one is endemic diseases that have a major impact on world health and especially the health of emerging nations. So these include things like malaria, tuberculosis, AIDS, viral hepatitis, childhood diarrheal diseases. Right. So now keeping these four different major threats in mind, Dr. Osterholm talked about how we can kind of save ourselves from these problems coming to fruition. So priority number one to prevent this is to create a Manhattan Project-like program to secure a game-changing influenza vaccine and vaccinate the world. So we just talked about this like five minutes ago, but, you know, it's the same idea. We need the U.S. government to kind of provide the necessary resources we need people to just kind of help us accomplish this task of a manhattan project like program and also of course we need money so he said we would probably need to invest one billion per year for seven to ten years to make this happen and you know this may sound like a lot but this is actually what we invest currently every year in hiv research which is great, but, you know, the whole point here is to say that if we can do it for one thing, we could definitely do it for the other thing being influenza. And then vaccination could save more lives in just a few months than all the emergency rooms in the U.S. could have done or have done in the last 50 years. So just think about that and then you could see how important it is. The second priority is establishing an international organization to urgently address all aspects of antimicrobial resistance. So what does this mean? It means that we need to create 
something similar to the IPCC, which we created for climate change, and that stands for International Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change. And that was created in 1988 by the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Environment Program. And so basically, it prepares for all aspects of climate change, its impacts, and response strategies. And so similarly, we need something like that for antimicrobial resistance to viruses, bacteria, parasites, etc. So we can study where they originate, we can study how they function, and what they could evolve to, to effectively fight anything that comes our way. And then the third priority is to support and substantially expand the mission and scope of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, or the CEPI, to fast-track comprehensive public-slash-private vaccine research, development, manufacturing, and distribution for diseases of current or potential critical regional importance. Essentially, it's saying that we need a board to kind of take control and figure out what we need to do in order to create vaccines. Currently, the international system for research, development, and distributing vaccines is broken and near collapse. So the CEPI that I mentioned is kind of trying to step in and take over. But Dr. Osterholm believes that it's not thinking big enough. There still needs to be a annual $1 billion investment to help kickstart the project, I guess, or help the CEPI really accomplish all the goals. Aside from vaccines and helping those projects get uh, initiated and followed through on, also there's a need for diagnostic tests, um, those that can be done quickly and reliably, because if not, then, you know, if it takes a while, then you're spreading the virus without really knowing it if you can't get the virus back and let's say you know there's no quarantine measures in place the fourth priority is launching the global alliance for control of the aids transmitted diseases which is gaad and coordinate with the bill and melinda gates foundation malaria strategy which is known as accelerate to zero and so basically we need mosquito control there's a dramatic emergence of epidemic arboviral diseases and we need to work effectively. We need a coordinated source of funding to develop, manage, and implement the program. And so there would be an initial investment of $100 million annually in order for it to be effective. And the Accelerate to Zero strategy for malaria control is for the disease transmitted by the anopheles mosquito and so in coordination with the GAAD we could have a great response to all malaria related diseases. Priority five is to fully implement recommendations of the bipartisan report of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense. So basically there's this report that provides a kind of roadmap for how to maximize preparedness in case of a bioterrorism attack and this is for the U.S. or really anywhere else in the world. Um, so basically, the, the problem Dr. Osterholm has with this is this report is great, but it's kind of just sitting on a shelf collecting dust. So what he proposes is that the next administration should kind of take this report and really implement it into their policy because it contains 33 recommendations on what we can do to prepare ourselves 
in case of a bioterrorism attack or maybe to prevent a bioterrorism attack. And, um, you know, he really believes that it's a great document that we should just kind of follow more. The sixth one is establishing an international organization similar to the National Scientific Advisory Board for Biosecurity, also known as the NSABB, to minimize the use of DURC and GOFRC to transmit pathogens of pandemic potential. And so basically, this organization would be leading the world in addressing current and future challenges of DURC and GOFRC. And so this wouldn't stop all intentional and unintentional usage of dual usage or dual use research of concern and gain of function research of concern. But it's better to try something than not do anything and sit back and watch something unfold. Priority seven is to recognize that tuberculosis, HIV, AIDS, malaria, and other life-threatening infectious diseases remain major global health problems. Basically, so many people, I mean, I don't need to reiterate the stats from when we did, when we covered this chapter, but so many people are being infected and so many people are dying, millions of people from these three plus conditions. And, um, you know, especially when antibiotic resistance becomes even bigger of a problem, tuberculosis infections are not going to get any better. So we really need to understand that this is a problem and then we should get it under control. Yeah, just because something is out of the limelight in first world countries does not mean that it can be ignored because there's 6 billion other people in parts that are still developing. The eighth priority is anticipating climate change effects. So Dr. Osterholm says that infectious disease is like fire and climate change is fuel. And so with climate change comes vector-borne diseases, and this will substantially grow in number. There will be a surge of malaria and tick populations that didn't exist prior in specific populations, and so this will be really bad for humans who will pick up diseases from these, these creatures. Also, the precipitation patterns will be affected, so there could be flood, drought, the sea, vo- sea levels could rise and fall. And so there will be insufficient safe water and food. And so basically, this is the perfect recipe for increasing the risk of infectious diseases, like Dr. Osterholm says. Priority nine is to adopt a one health approach to human and animal diseases throughout the world. So basically, what one health means is just understanding how humans and animals are not separate organisms. Like we we interact all the time. We live in one environment. And so it's to understand the fact that animals are likely to be infected with these viruses or what have you. And it's likely with the way we have them herd together so close, um, it's likely that it's just going to spread from one animal to the other and then from animal to human when we consume them. So it's just recognizing how we kind of have to work to not only prevent disease in humans, but also prevent disease or control disease in animals as well. Dr. Osterholm proposes that the U.S. kind of take initiative and provide the bulk of like the money needed um, with G20 providing substantial support, which, yeah, it sucks that we have to take the initiative. But like we are the U.S., you know, we've been known for being leaders on so many things in the past. 
So this is just one of those things we have to do or else we're all just going to die. We could have all the resources in the world. world. And this is a quote from Dr. Osterholm. But we won't achieve much without leadership, accountability, and an effective command and control structure. And if we keep looking for someone else to be the leader, then we're just going to spend a lot of time waiting. So might as well take initiative. So in order to go about the crisis agenda, we need to first take initiative and then we need to articulate what we need for the global for the global public health leadership and also alternative approaches because one thing isn't going to be surefire and just work immediately. And so we need multiple methods to do the same thing, basically. And to begin, Dr. Osterholm said that there needs to be a major overhaul or major repair done in the WHO, starting with the governance and financial support by member nations so that we can have a public health response that's effective to the 21st century diseases. And so if this isn't accomplished, then we need to start over basically, because this is the foundation in order to even get somewhere. And so we need to reprioritize and reorganize our own public health programs to make a meaningful change for disease prevention and control. So the WHO is consisting of 194 member states, and each of those have a single vote, which are all equal. And despite this, not everybody provides the same financial support to the WHO. And so it's not funded to do much. And so also the WHO is accountable to the World Health Assembly which means it's basically accountable to itself, which means no one is holding it up to a standard. And this isn't great because there's no punishment or no name and shame thing that comes about with this. If someone were holding the WHO up to a standard or if there was a punishment for not acting properly, then there might be lasting reform. And what's kind of surprising is that uh, 23% of the WHO's budget actually comes from the U- U.S. government and the B- Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation combined. So I kind of uh, looked into this a little further. And specifically, I found that, I mean, throughout the years, the percentage has been different that they provide. But in 2014 to 2015 that year... Um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation provided $425.5 million to the WHO, while the U.S. government provided $536.2 million. So a little bit more than 100. But then you go to 2016 to 2017, and now it's actually equal. Both the U.S. government and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation provided $642 million. Um, The Gates Foundation provided just a tad bit more with like 642.9, while the government was 642.4. And then in 2018 to 2019, the government uh, provided more money at $681.8 million, while the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation provided $551.8 million. And then 
in 2020, it actually switched again, where the Gates Foundation provided $354.2 million, and the government provided $328.5 million. And I just think it's interesting, one, how, I mean, it's kind of sad to say how we've come to rely on private entities such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to take care of public matters like this. Um, unfortunately, because I feel like the government has kind of failed us in certain ways with uh, stepping up to the plate. And that's just like the first thing I found interesting. And then the second thing is kind of unrelated, but how, you know, 2014, 20, th- 2014 through 2018, we were providing upwards of, you know, 400 and then $600 million. Um, and then in 2020, for some reason, it dropped low to, 350 be on the higher end by the gates foundation so weird how we dropped in one year from six nearly 600 for gates and nearly 700 for the government to like mid 300 million could it be because of what we're experiencing right now with the pandemic like are we maybe that's what it is because you would think in times of crises they would put more money into the who but, I mean, there was that whole issue with, like, uh, President Trump not liking the WHO or criticizing the WHO for something. So, maybe he just stopped providing money to them, which would make sense why it's a decrease then. But then, also, why did the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation drop, too? Maybe without the proper funding from the president or from the country itself, then there's no point if Bill and Melinda Gates give a lot Possibly. of money. You know, we're so willing to spend money for the military, but not so much when it comes from these public health crises. So he just talks about how we should probably rethink the way we're going about that. Yeah, and on that note, we discussed all the money that we need to spend in order to fund the right programs and resources to get ourselves back on track to fight these deadly diseases. And so we mentioned that we need to spend about $1 billion annually for seven to 10 years, and then another 1 billion, and then an initial investment of 100 million annually. And so altogether, that's only 2.1 million annually. And that's not even for the rest of our lives it's just one of those is just for seven to ten years in comparison the military budget is 934 billion dollars it seems like a incredible amount and i don't think it's being allocated correctly yeah maybe see where we can cut some fat and then just try and redistribute it into let's say bioterrorism or biodefense because that's another form of defense but it's just not as plain and simple as war, for example. So Dr. Osterholm criticizes the WHO, and he says basically if the WHO isn't really stepping up and doing its job properly, then we need someone else to do that. So who's going to do it? Now, this organization called the Global Health Security Agenda, or GHSA, stepped up, but... Um, it's not really seeming to make a difference because when you look at how they responded to Zika and yellow fever outbreaks, 
they didn't really do much to correct the issue. So if the GHSA isn't going to do it, basically, Dr. Austin proposes that we're just going to need to create something from scratch. So he believes that there should be a NATO-type treaty organization. So you have a bunch of countries coming together that are going to provide resources, personnel, financial stuff all together so that it's not like one country's bearing like most of the burden. Um, and that way, if it's like a global effort, then we, you know, there's more power in numbers. The only problem is, is politics. So you've got to get authority. So this is a quote from Dr. Fauci, but he says, basically, you have to get a kind of authority that's not going to stand in the way of getting things done that maybe they don't understand or they don't believe in when science is saying that this is a threat. Like they should be open minded to understanding that this is a big threat. If it, if it is a big threat, right, whatever it is, they should be open minded to hearing about it and then um, trying to work with experts in the field to get it done. So Dr. Osterholm says how he gave members of the House of Representatives a briefing on the Zika virus. And so one senior congressman asked him if a mosquito was actually a miniature drone controlled by ISIS, if we could get the funding we needed or wanted to fight the Zika virus. And this brings up an important point about how the U.S. is so active military-wise. We are always ready for a military response with personal weapons and logistical support, intelligence, and diplomacy. And so if a war were to break out or if there was a crisis in the Mediterranean, we wouldn't have to prepare to send in troops. We would already be prepared. We have our aircraft carrier built, we have everything we needed ready to go. And so we need the same mentality and same reaction time for things like infectious diseases. We need to have personnel in place. So this would include people like public health epidemiologists, physicians, nurses, vets, sanitarians, statisticians, surveillance technicians, etc. And we'd also need weapons, which are vaccines, antibiotics, pesticides, point of care, laboratory tests, environmental health tools, bed nets, and comprehensive global disease surveillance systems. And he says how our current public health care professionals, they wouldn't be able to lead us out of a crisis that happened right now because of our complacency with diseases. We need people that can see the bigger picture and act accordingly and act proactively instead of in hindsight or people that can actually lead in general. And this can't just be a slow effort either. It needs to, there needs to be motivation. We need essentially cheerleaders to support the crisis agenda and just get us moving so that we reach our goal. A pandemic isn't something that we just don't see coming because there are a lot of signs that we can look at. And so if it's preventable, you don't want to look back on it and think that all these lives could have been saved had had we just acted. And I feel like before, you know, our current times that we're living in, I could imagine us or anyone reading this book 
And if we weren't familiar with, you know, and we weren't familiar with pandemics being a thing, we probably would have thought this sounded very apocalyptic and like, there's no way our whole world is going to shut down because of a virus. Like, they're just overreacting. There's no way. But clearly now we've seen what that it can happen. So, I mean, um, there's no reason to really even have that excuse. It's just like now if we don't do anything, it's kind of just like, what was this all for? We didn't come this far to only come this far. So we need to see it through and get to our end goal. So you may be thinking, what can, you know, there's a lot of stuff about what the government has to do. Um, It seems like we're almost like talking at people because, you know, what are we supposed to do? So that's what Dr. Osterholm then presents us with. If the average citizen wants to kind of get involved, basically it's going to require grassroots political action that we've seen with other issues um, being changed, like, you know, things that uh, we've gotten Congress to change through other grassroots actions. So we're going to need that. And um, if you guys want to stay alert, kind of just follow different different things of pandemic potential um, or just any of these infectious diseases we've talked about and learn what the country is doing, how you can get involved. Um, you can follow SIDRAP News. So you can go to their website, www.cidrap.umn.edu. Uh, it's completely free to read the information. It's updated daily. And Dr. Osterholm says that it's not too complicated where it takes a physician or scientist to understand anyone can basically read it so we'll put that in our description so you guys can check it out if you want and like we said before education is very powerful so it's encouraged that you read about it educate yourselves and educate people around you with the correct information elsa and i yesterday did a little extra and we decided to kind of look up what dr osterholm proposed uh about you know the current situation because this book was written in 2017 and so um you know before covid so we wanted to see what he thought about everything that was going on today and we stumbled upon one particular video of him actually being interviewed on i think johns hopkins's podcast one of theirs and uh you know he was just talking about i mean it was most recent so it was from like uh right before christmas and so, he, you know, at this point, I don't expect him to even say, like, oh, my God, look what's happening. I predicted this. I, I would expect that maybe in, like, March, right? March 2020. So we don't really know if he said that. But he did mention now in this video that there's no need to start saying, I told you so, whatever. He doesn't like to say that because what good is that going to do now? He's very forward thinking in that. Now we just got to work on getting out of this situation. Also, he urges us to stay inside, you know, protect ourselves, do all the things that professionals have been saying to do. But he's very strict in the sense that he doesn't want to give anyone any leeway. So he was like, even if the CDC recommendations say that, like, yeah, you're not supposed to meet with anyone. But if you do, here's what you can do. He's just he basically draws the line in the sand. He's like, no, you shouldn't be going to see people. And he doesn't say that to be cruel or whatever. But he's just I, I think this line stuck with me. And he was basically saying, like, for Christmas, I'm telling you guys not to meet with your families so that you will have family to meet with next year. And I thought that was powerful.
Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, I like the way he mentioned how policies and uh, things that the CDC says are in extreme cases. For example, like if you go, if you must go out, then, you know, do X, Y, Z. But people take that as a, if you are going out, then just do this and you'll be safe, which isn't true. I also like how he said, um, we're not asking you to do this for the rest of your life. It's just sacrifice one Christmas with your family, not see grandma and grandpa for one day or one season, and you'll be able to meet with them next season. Whereas if you do go out, then there's a potential that you don't get to see them. So this is seen in the interview when Dr. Osterholm says that the general public is like skeptical of the vaccine and also about 34% of physicians, so people who are directly interacting with COVID patients are waiting six months to see the effects of the first set of people taking the vaccine before they themselves take it. And so this means that these people could be vectors because they're directly in contact. It's not like they're choosing not to take the vaccine and staying at home. They still have to work. And so this is something that's really scary, but it's to be expected because you can't force a needle in the arm. I mean, those were the two biggest takeaways from the, I think it was like 15 minute podcast episode. But basically, he seems pretty hopeful that we've kind of cleared this trying time. But I did notice that he seemed uh, tired. I think um, he's probably frustrated, as many of us are, with everything that's been going on, the way it's being handled. I think it's justified, but I also feel really bad. But I think he is still staying um, up to date on everything, trying to be there for everyone else. He was appointed to serve in President-elect Joe Biden's, I guess, his COVID-19 team, which is going to try and, you know, like protect us or like minimize the spread and, you know, like prevent deaths. So uh, crazy to think how we just read a book by someone who's going to be so high in power. So that's I mean, we also saw a lot of quotes from Dr. Fauci, but I mean, this is pretty cool, too. I'm really glad that someone this knowledgeable is going to be on the board for policymaking for COVID-19. And that gives me hope for how we handle this pandemic and hopefully we'll be out of it soon enough. Um, And in general, I think Dr. Osterholm is very respectable in that he provided a lot of information even during the interview but he was very calm and he just seemed very passionate about his field of study which is always admirable so yeah guys keep an eye out for dr osterholm if you see him on tv on news interviews and stuff and remember us when you see him so i think we learned a lot from dr osterholm too throughout through this book this season um you know, we talk a lot about the different kinds of problems we have. Basically summed it up in this last chapter. And, you know, essentially we just got to keep our eyes out for these emerging problems because it's only going to get worse with the population getting bigger um, unless we do something to prevent it, like vaccines, medications, treatments, and also just protective measures like for malaria bed nets, pesticides, uh, animal control, and things of that nature. Uh, I was surprised. My my biggest takeaway, I guess, from reading this chap, this book, um, I, I liked being able to see how what we were experiencing in everyday life has always been a problem, 
and just to see it, all these measures we've been taking and the measures we need to take for future problems was good to learn about. Kind of a little concerning because you see how many problems we actually have. So we didn't really mean to make you guys depressed. But I mean, it's more just stay alert. I agree. I think this book was really insightful and it was written in a way where it was easy to understand but also engaging. My biggest takeaway from this book is that a lot of things are preventable and so we do need to keep an eye out for these things and the best way to do your part if you're not immediately part of the group acting is to educate yourself. So that would include reading up on whatever's going on in the world and actually understanding what's going on with uh, correct knowledge instead of reading something on maybe Facebook or Twitter. Not saying that those are entirely wrong all the time, but fake media is a big issue. Right, and we learned a lot this season from reading this book. We hope you learned a lot just from reading this book, too. Um, And yeah, we hope you guys enjoyed the season. And stay tuned for season three. Bye. Bye.